Welcome to the Pluribus Podcast. My name is founder of Pluribus, the crowdfunded insurance protocol that reduces the damage of getting canceled. We are here to talk about all things cancellation and ways to fight back against it in the network page. Most importantly, we want to provide you with the tools necessary to not only escape the constraints of cancel culture, but to provide a positive vision for yourself and your network moving forward. Welcome. Today we have Dr. Bennett. Uh, Dr. Bennett is the founder and leader of Exit Group. This is a group dedicated to getting out while getting out is still good. Dr. Bennett was a victim of cancellation a little bit over a year ago. And since then, he has sprung into a huge successful entrepreneurial endeavor, helping guys like him get out of restrictive corporate employment and find better ways for guys like him to live out his values. So welcome, Dr. Bennett. Good to be here. So I want to start out by asking if you would, and you're welcome to give as much detail as you want in this, if you could kind of describe, I think you were officially doxxed and canceled. I think it was August of 2021, so a little over a year ago. So if you don't mind going through what led up to that, you have a substack that describes what happened in the aftermath and how it led into your latest project. Yeah, so I was part of a group of Latter-day Saints on Twitter. We we tend to be pretty like nice, agreeable, personable people. And there is basically a set of us who were sort of like okay, but we have to tell the truth. We have to say what we actually believe in in public. Uh, there was an Antifa group that was that was connected with ex members of the church, even as it turns out some journalists and some some intelligence uh folks that created a website to dox us all in turn week after week. And so I was, I was neither the first nor the last, nor the most uh, extreme case. But basically, I, a friend of mine was over at my house who was aware of what, what I was saying online. And he kind of broke the news <laughs> to me. He saw the post before I did. I was, a, I was calling me a racist, white supremacist, homophobic, sexist. I don't think I missed any of the uh, any of the big like no no things you're not allowed to be, and it was funny because like I, I I didn't even think well, frankly the stuff they got me for wasn't wasn't the stuff I thought they'd get me for, but I actually let my employer know because uh, I knew they'd be reaching out to them, and I said you know hey, what do I do about this? I'm being targeted in this way. And, and actually like the people that I spoke to, the human beings that I spoke to individually were supportive and they were like, it sucks this is happening to you. This is America. You should be able to say what you think, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't hear anything from them once HR had spoken. <laughs> I, uh, I was asked to, to talk to some HR reps invited to sort of explain slash disavow some of my tweets and uh, I didn't. And I actually, uh, it was kind of my greatest hits a little bit. So I, I actually caught myself kind of chuckling at some of the tweets they asked me to reread. And I was asked to like leave while they made a decision. And then I was fired like 48 hours later. So just to clarify, so this group that you're a part of, this is, this is what a lot of Mormons, more conservative Mormons, this, that what they call does not, correct? Yeah, and it wasn't really like a group. It was just like uh, it's just a couple of guys that used a hashtag. Like they're what we didn't have meetings or you know uh, insignia or anything. 
Right. So Desnat, of course, standing for Deseret Nationalism, which I, we won't get into that. Um, you all who are listening can look up what that is and what the aesthetic is and what it's all about. <laughs> well, what's interesting to hear, right, is it sounds like your coworkers, maybe and some of them were friends, were very sympathetic, like, hey, you should be able to say whatever you want online and it shouldn't impact your employment. But it was really sort of this bureaucratic structure, right, within HR and other places that that really got you good, right? And everyone, everyone that I've spoken to who's had this experience has had the same experience, which is there is not actually any groundswell of outrage that like your boss is going to have to confront from a PR perspective. That is not how it works. It is entirely an attempt to trigger a, a reaction from HR which is which is effectively the enforcement arm, the, the way that the way that ideological control is enforced at the corporate level. The incentive behind that is not like, oh, your company's going to have to like answer questions on Twitter to like angry individuals. The incentive that they're facing is you could potentially be the target of a lawsuit for like uh, creating a hostile work environment or this that or basically. You could you could create a liability for the company, and if they hear that you are a uh, bigoted monster and they don't fire you, then when somebody comes along who wants to put their hand in the company's pocket, they can just say, "Well, the guy that got called out for being a bigot, who you knew was a bigot, you didn't do anything about that, and now this happened, and so you're liable. It's your fault." And so that's that's the mechanism. That's how it works. Right. So essentially, what you're saying is that. There's this structure that's about managing liabilities, right? And to a certain extent, it's not even like the CEO or whoever's in charge of a company is actually making a lot of his decisions. A lot of this sort of authority is delegated out to a managerial structure. Um, and the job of that managerial structure is to comply with some ever-changing set of edicts. And if you find a problem employee, right, today the rules have changed. Are you willing to go with the new changes? And if somebody says no, the job of that managerial structure is to say, look, we found this problem employee, and so we're going to deal with it. <laughs> that- They're supposed to find you before the uh, the mentally ill employee does. <laughs> That's their job because a mentally ill employee is going to be the source of the the tort, the source of the of the case that's going to be brought against the company. And so the goal uh, the goal of HR is essentially to be more mentally ill than the most mentally ill person on staff, so that they can identify, you know, they they can have the appropriate paranoia. So yeah, it's a tough job. I've heard you describe this as. Uh... As the job of HR is to be maximally woke, they need to make sure they capture all the different extreme possibilities before somebody outs them. As of this week, yeah, not not as of not as of 2016 or 2018, but but like what what are the what are the mentally ill people looking for right this minute? Proactive mental illness, really. Yes. <laughs> all right. So that kind of gets you into the space of, so we have these groups, a uh, group of kind of conglomerate of Antifa journalists, intelligence, who knows who, how many people had responsibility there. 
we get this first Substack post from you. And this kind of goes in line with what you were saying, right? You said first doxing is not hell. So you admit that it's it's like very adrenal, right? Nobody likes to be brought brought into the tribunal and, and forced to hang their head in shame. But for you, you describe uh, it was not hell. It was actually kind of entertaining. It was pretty fun to get read your list of greatest hits. So can you describe a little bit? I'm sure so some part of it was fun and some part of it was liberating, right? That you didn't have to bend the knee anymore, but I'm sure some part of it was also pretty harrowing. How am I going to pay for my family, for my kids, for food? What am I going to do in terms of employment? Probably, I'm assuming you felt that at this point, you would never be let back into the corporate world. So that's just a completely closed off option for you. Can you describe, you know, what what did you feel confident in? And then what do you wish you had in terms of support, and that could be, you know, either in terms of re- relational support, like I wish I had people who could boost morale, or maybe you were like, I was looking for these technical sorts of things, like some sort of jobs program that I could fall back into, or what is it that you really would have needed? And what what is it you're like, eh, it was kind of fine when this happened, I was pretty sure I was going to be okay. Okay, well, there's a couple dimensions to those questions. The, what was hard about it? was just the physical animal response to realizing that somebody could just take that away from you and there was nothing you could do about it. There was no case I could make that would have changed anything. I guess I could have hired a lawyer and maybe they would have got me negotiated for some kind of a severance package, but then, you know, maybe they don't and then I'm just in five figures of lawyer bills while I'm, you know, so, so, you know, that, that's a big piece of it is like, you, you just, there's a helplessness and, and there's also a sense of like, most of us, we spend most of our lives not having the experience of going to bed with like a tiger in the jungle <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's out there and you know, it wants to eat you and you don't like, honestly, you know, when I, when I saw who was talking about me, my biggest uncertainty was like, how badly do these people want to come after me? When do they stop? Like, because you know, they have, they have finite attention and finite resources, but they have way more resources than I have. For because I worked for the government, there's like, do they want to like investigate like every aspect of how I did my job? Because there's so many unknowns about what they could go after. And I would say, as far as the resources that I wish I had, I mean, that was that was essentially how I started Exit. Was I thought like, what would I like to have? What would have been good? Because I, you know, I was lucky in the sense that you know I had enough of a public presence by then that. I could put it out there what happened to me and I had lots of people reach out and say, let me know how I can help. And I had the same experience too of a sense of like, I wish I could do more because I, like I said, I wasn't the only one to get doxxed. And I was thinking like, I wish I could do more for my friends who got into this kind of trouble, but like I didn't have a job just waiting in the wings for somebody who got in trouble in their particular industry. But then I got to thinking about like, well, if I were to get enough people in a room just thinking about 
and talking about what are we looking for? How do, how do we all get out? Well, then if you've got 150 people, then the odds that at least one of those people can help at least one of those other people, you know, in some way, some meaningful material sense is almost a hundred percent. It's, it's very, very likely. And so, so that was the genesis of it. I basically said, you know, let's, let's put something together. I will facilitate it. And it's been a little over a year now. And my target has been once a month, I'd like to move the needle for somebody in a way that is serious enough that I'd be willing to ask them for a testimonial. And so far we're on track. We've had that kind of success. So, and I mean, that's, that's guys getting, getting essentially canceled and then making three times what they were making from their previous job. It's guys thinking about going back to a W2, but then getting some help in the group and turning it around and being on track to double their revenue in that year. It's been really powerful. So I know that it works now. That's essentially the answer is what, what would I want to have access to if I got doxxed? Well, I, I went and tried to build that thing. And here we are. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Moving into the founding of Exit. So people are going to ask, so what is it in particular you're exiting from, right? And so if we go to your website, Exit is a fraternal organization dedicated to ending our reliance on corporate employment so that we can't be threatened by a politicized HR department or an employer mandate. Exit members are starting businesses, finding remote jobs, learning trades, growing their own food, anything that makes them harder to intimidate. What I like about how you characterize this is you can kind of see as the number grows, um, the number of potential connections increases. This is like one of those fifth grade math problems. Draw a shape with 10 sides, how many diagonals? Now draw a shape with 12 sides. You can see the number of contact points and diagonals increases. It is actually provable, inevitable that you know the more people that join an organization like this to bolster themselves against being canceled, you're eventually going to find someone who will help you and probably help you um, in the ways that are particular to your situation. So that's really cool. If I can just interject, the challenge with that shape, that polygon with the diagonals, is that that shape can get so big that the diagonals are very long. What I mean by that is as the group gets bigger, it becomes harder for people to find each other on an individual level and connect. And so one of the things that we are trying to do is to make sure that there's facilitation such that somebody is aware of you and of the resources of the group and is able to connect you. So like currently I'm in that seat, but we've got other guys who are sort of preparing to take on that role. So essentially uh, it, it will never be Facebook where you are one of a billion users and it's just sort of up to you to figure it out. It will always be a situation where you have a Dunbar-sized, a knowable scale group of people that you can connect with and then have access to the larger group. There's always a tension between the size of the network and its and, and the value and intimacy of the connections. Yeah. Yeah. So this is great because this kind of dovetails into what I want to ask next, which is you're talking about how to maintain coherence as this project A either grows or it becomes more necessary or becomes more attractive. 
And so one way you're talking about this, right, is having facilitators, kind of leaders to be contact points. But I'm interested also as well, as I'm sure our listeners are, do you apply any sort of ideological or intellectual filters um, to the type of people you accept in the group? Is, is that an important part of maintaining coherence? Or are there other ways besides facilitation and besides ideology and that you try to maintain sort of a baseline of agreed upon values or orientations? I mean, my mission is to have grandchildren, which means my mission is to create the infrastructure such that my kids can find people to marry and, and, and have a healthy environment in which to raise their own children, a culture that iterates. And my vetting process for the group is currently, it's a conversation with me. And every person who applies, they have a phone call with me and, and we talk about what their goals are and, and what their, you know, sort of big picture, what the dream is, and then what they can offer to the group. And I, I would say I don't meet a ton of people who are an obvious bad fit, but, you know, there, there are some and I screen for that. I haven't generalized a protocol for that because it's actually pretty complicated to uh, you're kind of addressing a, a situation of vibes a little bit. Right. And currently I don't need to do that. So I, I stick with just, you know, and I'm not the FBI, I'm not doing a background check, but I'm <laughs> like, you know, if, if they give me a name, I'm looking them up to see if their name checks out and they work for who they say they work for. And are they, <laughs> you know, are they connected with Salish Coast Antifa or not? But in broad stroke, the, the people that I've had to say no to, it's less like, oh, I'm suspicious of you ideologically. Because honestly, those guys, if they come in, they're going to be very disappointed. They're going to see us talking about raising chickens and <laughs> they're not, they're not going to get what they want. Honestly, the answer is occasionally you get like obviously mentally ill people. And like, number one, we can't necessarily help them. Number two, they're going to make the whole vibe weird. So like th that's most of the time um, I, I could tell you some stories, but yeah, we just, we make sure that everybody is, is high value and, and solid and conceivably contributes in a way other than just their dues. Right. It's almost like you're selecting for some sort of skin in the game, whether it's intellectually or skills based or something like that. And I also, what I think is really cool um, that you said is there's an implication that there are members who join who still remain anonymous right? They no. don't actually use their real name. So you're even able to preserve an anonymity in the group itself. Yeah, it's definitely like swim at your own risk. We don't invite people to, to say more than they want to say. There's always going to be a tension and a trade-off between how much do I know about your life and how much can I help you? And how much can the guys help you? But yeah, everybody's in charge of their own OPSEC and what they share. And as far as like making sure that association with the group is not a headache for other people. The rule is we keep it Joe Rogan. So, you know, <laughs> people have, people have different attitudes and opinions and things they'd like to talk about. And it's like, well, could you talk about it that way on Joe Rogan? Then, okay, fair enough. That's just how we keep it safe for everybody. Very good. So I want to circle back to um, what you've said about creating an iterative culture, creating a culture where your grandchildren can thrive and have their own families, right? And I think this tracks with a couple of other things you said, both on Twitter and on your Substack, which is that a general opposition to cancel culture doesn't really make sense as a coherent ethic, right? 
there are various ideas on how to fight back against a cancel culture. So there's kind of the the Benedict Option type of thing where, so the Benedict Option is a book written by Christian Rod Dreher about kind of withdrawing, right, and trying to live out a life of peace away from the controlling institutions and kind of hoping it passes. And then there are other people who have different strategies. Um, you've described this in many ways. Um, exit is somewhat of a temporary thing. It's it's a way to collect your basis, way to find people who you can collaborate with. but just generally exiting and having a principled opposition to cancel culture is not the solution. There's actually something more that's needed. So can you talk a little bit about why it's it's not enough to just be like, oh, well, I don't like cancel culture, right? You actually have to do something more. And what is that something more? Yeah, well, I mean, social opprobrium, being saying things that are unpopular and having that unpopular speech have consequences is part of being an adult. And that will always exist in every culture everywhere. And most people understand that when you talk about like advocacy for the abolition of the age of consent, for example, like that's a, that's a pretty easy one to say, like, yeah, pretty much nobody thinks <laughs> that you shouldn't face any consequences, even like social consequences for advocating that kind of thing. And I think a lot of like, a lot of the reason why libertarian in principle spaces that are dedicated to like maximum personal liberty for its own sake. One of the ways that those groups become weird is because they attract people who maybe, maybe let's say an unprincipled interest in being able to do and say things that are gross. And frankly, I'm, I'm just not interested personally. And I think, I think most of our guys are not interested personally in that kind of uh, free speech maximalism. I, I think, I think to some extent, a lot of us view that as, Part of what went wrong, we were so committed to playing nice with these terrible ideas that that they sort of ate the culture. You have to have something that you're actually about, something that you actually believe in. And yeah, for, for me, that thing is grandchildren. And you know, obviously, I have other values personally, but what I think is the the common ground of the group is building a culture that's survivable, that's iterable, uh, which means having grandkids. Right. So I've noticed that you've recently taken very much to Balaji Srinivasan's framework of the network state. And in a way, a lot of what you're describing in terms of facilitation and connections from people is about creating a network. I don't know much about if you're interested in the state part, which you may be at some point, it sounds like you're still in the beginning of things. And something you've mentioned, right, is he has this idea of when you're starting to create a network state, the first thing is to create a network union. And there are various ways of doing that. But one way that's maybe safer than others is to do this thing called a one commandment. So instead of trying to redesign a culture from scratch, um, you kind of pick one orienting point. And then that orienting point being the one commandment is kind of a shelling point. It's a way for different people to coordinate and orient around one single thing and then base the development of a culture around that. So, so I'm interested to hear from you how you came to develop this sort of one commandment, which you're talking about is you're talking about creating a road for grandchildren in a larger scope. That means creating a culture that survives. What do you see right now about the culture? What do you see about this particular broader cancel culture from HR departments 
that you don't think is iterable, right? What what is it about this specific circumstance that's makes you think, hey, this culture is actually terminal. And so what I'm trying to do is create a different type of culture, which will have some social opprobrium, but really it's about orienting around something in particular. And how is that informed your ability to develop a network union? Okay. Yes. The problem with uh, cancel culture, so to speak, is basically that it is an autoimmune condition. It is the culture's immune system, the guns of that system being turned against themselves. So that the only thing that you are not allowed to do is to say that there are things you're not allowed to do. And the only thing you're not allowed to do is draw a hard line and say no. And that just on its face is obviously unsustainable. The endless search for equality on every conceivable axis, effectively infinite ways for two people to be unequal. And the demand for equality of outcome, which, you know, equity basically is is what that's referred to now, is an infinitely self-consuming culture. There's, there's, there's no bottom to it. And Moldbug had a great way of putting it. He said, it's the, the liberation of not one stone left upon another because the stone on top is oppressing the stone beneath. Like absolutely no hierarchy, which means, I mean, essentially identifying this thing is good and this thing is bad. And so I'll choose the good. That's, that's like the essence of human cognition, of human will. So you're basically saying, if you can't do that, then you just can't, it's just anti-human, anti-human consciousness. You can't believe in anything. You can't hold to any principle. In a more material sense, what is happening in the culture is that it is being dominated by the most monomaniacal, the least principled. When you you remove all constraints, it becomes a competition, absolute zero-sum competition where the most intense, the least principled people dominate. And you see that on the right and the left. It's like, Who's in charge of the conversation? Essentially, single childless careerist weirdos across the board in <laughs> politics, in business, in academia. And so these people have no interest in or maybe maybe not even any understanding of what it takes to have a family and reproduce culture. They're not thinking on those dimensions and the system is not being built to accommodate that at all. You see that with feminism. I mean, like, frankly... <laughs> You you can't uh, you you can't buy a car built to accommodate a large family anymore. And that's like a silly example, but it's just one of the millions of ways in which the culture is not being built uh, for families. So your point about having when there's no restraints, I mean, most moral people have are self restrained, but then people who are not self restrained are left to go wild. And then there's the one restraint rule of not being able to restrain them. And it gets pretty convoluted and consequences are kind of very evident to everyone at this point. But jumping off of the um, the mention of the network state idea, because obviously that was a very broad concept under which a lot of projects are meant to bloom. So you and I both have projects tackling the cancellation issue from different angles. Yours started with social networks, which, as you mentioned, leads to financial success through networking and the type of help you get there. 
Ours starts from the financial angle of providing financial safety net for when that ultimately happens to mitigate the damage. But because it's provided through networks, the social support system will ultimately be there as well. I know my answer to this, but I'm interested to hear your angle, although I suspect that they'll be similar. But what would you say to other people thinking of wanting to help, quote unquote, fight back or just address the cancellation issue as a whole, but see a number of projects already going on and might think to themselves that it might not be worth it or under the impression that someone else has it covered? One of the things that's been really, really surprising about jumping into this world of like of like tackling these big problems is the set of people who are who are positioned to do that are few. And it won't happen unless you do it. <laughs> it won't happen at all. Or or it'll happen much later and much worse. That would be like the number one thing I would say is yeah, get involved. And then I would say find your tribe and build these connections. I think we have a great tribe here at Exit. If you want to build your Russian Orthodox only, like whatever it is. And this is where you talk about how like the network state applies to all sorts of groups and all sorts of things will bloom. Whatever you want to do, go start making those connections. I will say it's more work than it looks like, but it's incredibly valuable and incredibly rewarding. And as far as the impact that you can have, if somebody is saying, oh, I, I don't think I can make a difference. People saw what happened to us. And the fact that we're all okay now, and the fact that most of us are actually better off now. Like, so somebody gets canceled, right? And they lose their job and they're miserable and whatever. Everybody else saw that, right? They said, well, I'm not going to get fired. I've, I got bills to pay. I got mouths to feed. I'm not going to, you know, it's not worth it for me to weigh in on the Civil Rights Act at this point. When, when something bad happens to them like this and a community rallies around them and lifts them up and makes them all right, that has a similar effect. Just like tens of thousands of people made decisions on the basis of the bad thing, tens of thousands of people also go, oh, maybe it'd be all right. Maybe it's survivable. Honestly, we're not the vanguard on that. I mean, like I work with Tom Woods on a similar project that he's running. And he basically had this happen to him in like 2005, 2006. He had a real like media hit job go after him. And this was back before anybody was talking about it. And people basically still believed in what they heard on the news. And so, you know, I have a lot of respect for those guys. You know, when I tell people what happened to me, they'll go like, oh, well, the Guardian, that makes sense. That adds up. They're ridiculous. And that wasn't the case, you know, 15, 20 years ago. You know, there's, there's cracks appearing in these systems of narrative control already. And I think what scares people, I don't know if I'm going way off the topic you asked about, but I think what scares people is that they're finally waking up to the fact that these systems of control exist. So in their mind, it all of a sudden got way worse. But what I'm saying is, no, the fact that you know that it exists now means that it's getting better. Mm. That means that they're failing to control the narrative. So, you know, I'm definitely anti-black pill. No black pills allowed. 
I have to imagine that is very gleeful right now, the way you're describing things, because his Twitter account, his first description is preference cascade enjoyer. <laughs> I do enjoy a good preference cascade. That's right. What you're describing here, you're talking about an incentive landscape. People have different adaptations to that. And now they're starting to realize, hey, there's a different type of adaptation instead of putting my head down and being silent. Maybe there's a cooler way to kind of build a fortress and maybe eventually fight back. And could I throw in just my shorter and less eloquent answer to my own question? For people who see similar projects going around and might feel inhibited from starting their own, it's just incorrect. That It would be like if there was one charity or any organization that's tackling corruption or sex trafficking. Nobody looks at that and goes, oh, they have that thing covered. It's such a large, tangled, huge mess that there is a very large tent for potential solutions. And also they feed into each other. This conversation wouldn't be happening if Kevin didn't start his project. And then I found people to help me build mine. And who knows what type of positive influence uh, this might have on someone else that would also make them less constrained and give them more ability to influence what they want to influence. That type of stuff feeds into each other. And also, this is a, a bit of a tangent, but I also had this theory on like an untapped market for dissent, which is what I just a phrase that I use when I have to talk to certain people about this. It doesn't necessarily mean super edgy opinions of like dissident right ideas. Just anything that strays from the approved narrative. And I think, like you said, Kevin, at first people discover these systems of control and go, oh shit, there's this whole thing. But once you get a couple of examples here and there and like a couple of rays of light piercing through the veil, that stuff can really start snowballing. And once more people start to realize that, I guess I'm really just defining what a preference cascade is, which we, have, <laughs> which we already just touched on. Right. But yeah, it's, it's fortuitous for people that want to explore this space. Yeah. And I mean, part of the advantage of being up against a system that is eating itself is that it can't stabilize. There's no way for them to right the ship without completely abandoning their value system. And what that means is that sooner or later, every single person is going to run afoul of this because you're all thinking human beings. And this is a war on human thought, but literally a war on noticing. I don't mean noticing particular things you're not supposed to notice. I mean, cognition. And because all cognition creates hierarchies of value, and that's what they're at war with. And so the preference cascade is not just on the level of like, uh, eventually we'll all look around and we'll notice there's more of us than there are of them. It's also that like the pool of who is not welcome within that framework is growing every day because it has to, because the framework has to become more and more and more restrictive. Basically what, I, what I've found at Exit is I would say easily 85% of our group doesn't have a cancelable social media presence. It's guys who just hate 
the things that they're being asked to assent to in their professional lives. And they hate what the culture has in store for their kids. I guess the advantage of that from my perspective is I have access to some of just the brightest and most honest and high caliber people because that's who's being spit out of this system. They're rejecting the best. We've got one guy who's a very highly placed tech recruiter. He got fired from an extremely lucrative, extremely high status job. And now he's with us and he's helping the boys out. It sucks that that happened to him, but it's incredible as far as like the kind of guys that we get around here. And of course, we're going to help him get squared away so that he's better off too. You asked me how I filter people. It's almost its own filter. It almost does the work for us. Mm. I don't know if this is an irony, right? But there's this idea, right? That for however long, and the people who want to bring the internal equity, they can decide whether it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. There's this idea that, oh, everything's oppressive. And so let's, let's liquefy all the hierarchies except that doesn't actually give you any freedom or equality. It just gives you a gray puddle of goose lop, <laughs> which is fundamentally anti-human, anti-life. It just puts everything into a cement mixture and pours it out onto the street. And it can't make people less talented. So it just displaces talent for people to scoop up and then outcompete them with. I want to pivot a little bit, though we've kind of established the opposition to cancel culture is not just like this principled sort of like, well, canceling is bad. It's actually fomenting a positive vision and then trying to create a culture around that. Um, and so in this case, we're talking about exit. You have this one commandment that you've developed in terms of creating a word for your grandchildren. Other groups might have different commandments around theological or intellectual or ideological sort of alignment. And so obviously, pretty much the standard way to propagate a culture is to have a family and teach your kids what you know, what's good, how to live their life. Very much appropriate. We are uh, family advocates here. Go get married, go start a family for sure. But then the other main way that cultures propagate is, is mimetic. So if not genetically, then through cultural memes. And often these cultural memes take the form of art because Culture is a very complex thing. There's a lot of messages, morals, ways to approach things, ways to build things. One of the best ways to propagate complex cultural memes is through artistic endeavors. This is why you see most religious texts are in the form of poetry. It's not prose. It's a way to engage that kind of ensnares the creative spirit and asks you into a living relationship with the culture. A lot of it has to do with geography or depending on where you live. So one question I have is in terms of mimetics, what type of art projects, you know, whether that's writing, media, video, building things, what type of culture are you trying to foster through art? What type of projects in that area are you trying to build? How are you going about that? And what are kind of your goals there? Yeah, so actually we're having two calls today that are relevant to this question, one of which is our exit media call, which some of the listeners may be familiar with Passage Prize, a literary competition where they basically put up some prize money and invited people to apply. They chose the top 
applicants from each of four categories. It was fiction, nonfiction, visual art, and poetry. And they handed out the prizes and then built a, an anthology out of the best of the applications, which they then sold. We are looking to get involved in that space as well in collaboration with those guys. That's going to be today. We're actually talking to one of those guys today. And we're also doing a scouting alternative. We're looking at the 1911 Boy Scout manual and, and maybe some of the older between now and then manuals to determine, because I mean, ultimately it's about appealing to adults, but it's also about catching people while they're young and inculcating ideas in this sort of pre-rational way. And to comment on like the memes and genes thing, I think there's a tendency to, well, to make it a binary. <laughs> it's not. A genes carry memes and memes influence genes. If what you value and you teach your children to value is like the Persians speaking the truth and being an excellent archer, then who is going to have the most status? Who's going to have the most children in that culture? It's, well, it's going to be the people who are built to do that. Your mimetic environment, the thing that you are teaching children to value and teaching adults to value in mates absolutely has an impact on the genetics of the population. It's absolutely, you have to do both. You have to do both. We're sort of making this foray into the cultural space. We've got guys who are like writing children's books. We have a content creation call every week where we talk about the different works of, of fiction and essays that our guys are writing and we pump them, shill them on Twitter and things. Basically, what you have to do, in my opinion, is... Well, well, what has happened, and this is this goes back to society that's built around not having families. Journalism and most of the arts are dominated by people who can tolerate decades potentially of making almost no money. People who can move whenever they need to and live in massively high cost of living areas in like a studio apartment or like a trailer or like a bus. And that just selects for a certain type of creator. It can't have escaped anyone's notice that like films end at the marriage, a romantic comedy that ends when they get married and then the story is over. I think that's an artifact of the people doing all of the creative content for corporate media being essentially these childless, rootless career people. And so part of what I'd like to do is take some of our guys who have that creative talent and create a world in which they can create without being sort of cut off from the real world, the holistic culture of, of uh, eventually becoming a father, eventually having a family. What would you want to see from Pluribus or how do you think that Pluribus could help bring better world about similar to the likes of which you would like to see? On the subject of content creators, basically to empower the people who don't have a corporate friendly message. Uh, because a, a lot of what's happening now is that people are countering independent ways to monetize a media presence. You don't have to work through the big gatekeepers anymore. Saturday Night Live used to be where the funniest people went because that's where you went to make money as a comedian. And now it's just dog shit because funny people aren't going to Saturday Night Live to build their career. Funny people are on YouTube, they're on TikTok, they're on Twitter. 
and they're just building it for themselves and making their own money. And the vulnerability in that system is, are they going to keep their payment processor? Are they going to get banned by YouTube? Are they going to get banned by Twitter? I see cancellation product as basically the answer to that. That closes that vulnerability and allows this sort of revolution to continue to unfold. And as far as what I'd like to see, obviously any insurance product has to have network effects. And, and starting from like a donor-supported model makes a lot of sense to me. But eventually, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see it become an actual insurance product where it's possible to have your quote-unquote premium really cover you in the event that you have a cancellation event so that it's self-sustaining. Absolutely. On the to-do list. Very long, very long to-do list. <laughs> I was going to ask you, so Bennett has described a particular way of getting certain type of people, particularly people who have families, to make content, to get them insured against the type of cost that they will incur socially and financially. What are the similarities and differences on how you see the importance of content creators and, and more than that, culture creators? So I definitely see the two interlinked because, I mean, when you get down to it, content creators versus culture creators, they're pretty close to synonyms depending on the type of content. But the more popular a content creator becomes, the more popular whatever subculture that grows around them becomes and the more influence in the world it has. As far as creating security for people that produce that content, creators create. They create as much as they feel that they can without having the ability to create taken away from them. Creators make their living off of being themselves and being appealing to people doing that, giving them back that freedom, something that we really want to do. And I think that will pay off in multiple ways. And uh, not to get too deep into the weeds as far as all the financial calculations and potential futures and everything, an actual insurance product where you pay a premium and can have everything covered. That definitely is on the to-do list. There's a couple of things that have to happen first that are just mandatory to make the numbers work out. I think that we have the things in place where we can knock that stuff out. And it shouldn't be... None of this will be easy, but there's no reason why any of this should be impossible. Yeah, A little bit, not too much time down the line, would definitely love to roll that out. Tacking these challenging problems, the advantage that you've got, the moat around your operation is that it's friggin' hard to do. I've had people ask me if, if what I do is stealable. And I've basically said, go ahead and steal it, man. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's like stealing the idea of mowing lawns. Be my guest. <laughs> Yeah, I used to be confused as to why, like, how does cancellation insurance not exist yet? Now I know. Turns out it's now hard. I know. Turns out it's hard. <laughs> that is for sure. All of projects, whether it's exit as a network union or pluribus as cancellation insurance, or even what you're talking about, passage press. I think people underestimate how much toil and sweat and alignment goes into developing these kind of things. But it's a very honorable type of work. It's something that you can go to bed knowing that you're doing something important. I have two more questions. So I'll ask this one first. To what degree does IRL <laughs> play in all of these sorts of projects? So of course, it's very fun to be a Twitter anon. You get to be polemic. 
against the stifling, the saltification of the blue checks. I guess the blue check privilege has been extended now, so that's not as much of an insult anymore. You know, to some degree, it's coordinating online is great. We have a lot of tools at our disposal to do that. It's the first step in a decentralized sort of attack on creating culture to fight back against cancellation. But there has to be an IRL component. And obviously, you raise your family where you are. But in terms of actually getting families or other individuals together, how does that work? Is it important? How much does IRL play a factor? What do you see as the trajectory of real geography playing a part in this moving forward? If it was as simple as go raise your family, then there'd be no reason to coordinate. Some of the conversations that we had with the guys was like, is it about fertility? Is it about, is it about raising a family? I, and I have a family. I've got a lot of kids. My obsession where my head's at is like, what's next for them? I can't select their friends and their mates, their whole social world for them. What I can do is build a world where there's lots of good options and lots of good possibilities. And so basically exit needs to expand. We've got probably three metros where you could find a half a dozen of our guys and get together, start a homeschool co-op, go camping, have a barbecue, what have you on, on a pretty regular basis. My dream is to have that in every city, which probably means somewhere between 50 to 100x the size, making it so that there's chapters in every major city so that you can always be within 20 minutes of somebody who shares your values and is committed to the same purpose and, and who you can get to know online and then offline. We do regular meetups once a month. I go all over the country to get the guys together. Those are incredibly powerful. And like, I've done a little bit of surveying of like, what's your most memorable experience with the group? And everybody's answer, if they've been to a meetup, is the meetup. IRL is, in my opinion, that's the destination. We are online right now because we have to be, because we've only found each other so far. But there's a lot more of us. We're going to find the rest and it's going to be IRL. I think people have this idea that it's like you can either be totally atomized or you can like go live in a Waco compound and be weirdos. My goal is neighborhoods, being close enough that you can do some basic kids are on the same soccer team. We have a house party once a month or something. It's funny how revolutionary you have to be to have like some basic things. I'm trying to grill basically is what I'm trying to do. But it turns out that I have to like overturn the whole system of ideological control in this country in order to be allowed to grill. <laughs> That's where it's at. Yes. Did you want to respond? My comment was about grilling. So no. <laughs> Turns out just grilling in your backyard has become, become a lot more of a complicated endeavor nowadays. So yeah. I want to close up. We're going to try to start uh, this tradition of asking this to all of our guests. We've talked about a lot of concepts here, like what is cancel culture? What does a coherent opposition look like in terms of creating culture? How does that happen through family, through art? Um, we've talked about preference cascades. We've talked about what it is we're fighting against, which is kind of this autoimmune, um, self-immolating preference that liquefies all hierarchies. One thing we want to emphasize here is that this takes courage. 
There's a really great quote from C.S. Lewis, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the highest point of reality. So what I want to ask you as a very personal question is, how have you developed your courage in the face of your cancellation? And what other virtues have you been able to practice because of practicing this courage? I think I, if I've noticed anything that's different about me, it's that I view the environment around me as a lot more changeable than I did before. If I don't have a contact, I can just call them. If there's a rule, there's some human being making those rules and it can change. When I talk to guys who are still kind of in their wagey mindset, the thing that I encounter the most is a sense of what can't be done and what's not possible and what's not movable and not changeable. It's actually routine for me to run into somebody who's like, I wish they would just fire me. I wish that they would just kick me out so that I wouldn't be allowed to be in this world anymore. And my answer to them is, yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was great that I had that bridge burned for me. It's not something that I chose. I wish I had chosen it. One of the things that I notice with these guys <laughs> is I notice how they sabotage their situations because they don't value them and like they shouldn't value them. They're terrible situations. If you really loved your job, you wouldn't be phoning it in and goofing around saying dangerous things on Twitter during the day. That was me for years. And I just did that and did that and did that until I got caught. And I realized as soon as I got caught and got doxxed, like, oh, I totally collaborated with these people. I totally set up the pin so that they could do this to me because I didn't give a shit. And I was right not to give a shit. Uh, maybe I'm losing the thread of your initial question, but if I had a piece of advice as far as like exercising that courage, it would be build the incentive structures that make that leap across the chasm smaller. I mean, that's what I'm all about. I'm all about finding the shortest path across that chasm and like courage, you're going to need courage. There's no safe, there's no risk-free way to make that leap, but there are all kinds of things you can do to prepare. The more prepared you are, the easier it is to have that courage. The courage to locus of control pipeline, many such cases. <laughs> right. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Bennett, for joining us today and sharing all your troves of wisdom. We look forward to continuing to work with you and having you in our radar as on the Pluribus team. Great to talk to you guys. You too. Take care. That was Dr. Bennett from The Exit Group. You can find him on Twitter as ExtraDeadJCB and check out his project at exitgroup.us. 
Thanks for joining us today and make sure to sign up at becomepluribus.com and follow us on Twitter at Become Pluribus to stay tuned to the latest updates.